one of my biggest questions for interns, I always ask, what are you reading? What's your favorite books? Who are you following to learn something right now? If you're not doing that, then that tells me you're really not passionate about this because when you have passion about something and you don't know about it, you are on a quest to find every piece of knowledge that you can to learn about this. Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joined on the line later today by Zach Dakin of TCU Baseball. Now, before we jump into this week's episode, I want to give you a fairly quick recap of the week that was, what's new in my neck of the woods, and all of that good jazz. So, as I kind of alluded to last week, man, not a lot going on. I'm definitely in the home stretch. Kiddos, as of today, have about six days left of school. So that's exciting. They're ready to be done. I feel like the month of May is always kind of a wash because the weather starts getting nice. You know, they've been in school for whatever, seven and a half, eight months. Everybody's kind of ready for it to be over with, even the teachers, right? I think this week Kindle has like pajama day and like tie-dye shirt day where they're like tie-dyeing shirts and then their friends are signing it. It's like everybody's kind of checked out at this point. So really just ready for, for that to wrap up, get into our summer. Coaching hours are going up, starting to get people back. That's exciting, obviously. I love this time of year from a coaching perspective because I get my pros back. I get my college kiddos back. I think I'm going to run a couple summer camps for younger kids this summer. So just really excited about some of the coaching stuff I have coming up and uh, even covered for the AM shift today. Dave uh, was sick, and so I got to hang out with all of our awesome Gen Pop morning clients. And man, a little bit rough in the sense that I don't know about you, but anytime I have to get up earlier, I have to get up early outside of my normal routine, I really struggle to sleep. So got to bed, perfect time last night, went to sleep at 11, thought, oh, I'll just get up at five, so I'll get those four sleep cycles in. (laughs) Didn't work out quite like that. Woke up at two, could not fall back asleep, and then uh, proceeded to crush coffee from 5 a.m. until about 10 a.m. just to get through that shift. (laughs) So uh, it was great to see all our morning people, though. We've got just amazing human beings that work out at IFAST. So it was really fun hanging out with them and catching up. So while I don't mind working mornings, hopefully next time I'll be a little bit more rested when that happens. Uh, Both kiddos sports are kind of in the heat of things, but also trending on the back half of the season. I think Cade's maybe got a couple more games. Lost, unfortunately, this weekend. I mean, it was bomb fest. It was like 25 to 18. So a lot of runs being scored. Cade hit it pretty well. The only downside to him hitting, I mean, he's making great contact with the ball, but he's a lefty, and he has this tendency to pull everything. So if you've ever watched a Little League game, the easiest out in Little League baseball is when somebody hits it to the first baseman, and I feel like that's about half of Cade's hits right now. He tears the cover off the ball, but he hits it really hard right to the first baseman, so they have time to field it and get him out. But he's been loving it. He's been doing really well. Kendall's team got a 2-2 draw. Felt like we really deserved to win this one. Girls really played tough. We got some girls finally that are excited to play goalie. And I got, man, I got girls that are really giving it their best effort. So that's been fun to watch. Probably had four or five really good chances. Just couldn't get the win. But, you know, sometimes a draw is better than the alternative. It's definitely better than a loss. And I felt like the girls walked away feeling really positive about themselves. So one more regular season game for them. Weekend off. And then uh, we've got our tournament. So that's wrapping up. One thing that's been really fun the last couple of days, I don't know how this happened, but all of our, all of a sudden, 
not only my children, but like these children in the neighborhood have discovered the amazing sport of wiffle ball. And I'm sure every one of you listening has either watched or witnessed a wiffle ball game in the past, but our kids are obsessed with it right now. They played on Saturday night for like two, two and a half hours straight. And it was just this steady rotation. Two kids would leave and three or four would come in and then, you know, two or three would leave and then three or four more would come in. Next thing you know, there's like 12 kids in our backyard playing uh, wiffle ball. So they had so much fun with it on Saturday that on Sunday, I mean, it was like six o'clock at night, but it was a beautiful night out. And Kendall was like, oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go round up people. I want to play wiffle ball. So, you know, I'm out there pitching and I said, oh, we'll play for like 30 minutes. We need to eat, shower. I got to cut the grass, all that stuff. Well, I'm a big softy and I'm not going to say no to my daughter and all of her kids and friends that are having fun. So they basically played either wiffle ball or kickball for two hours straight the next day. So I, I've likened it to uh, the field of dreams <laughs> that's in our backyard. If you build it, they will come. So I hope that continues. Unfortunately, it's raining here today, so I don't think it's in the cards. But that's been really fun to watch, just watching all the kiddos get out, play, enjoying the outdoors. There's no phones and just watching them have a great time. So that's been really fun. As I alluded to last week, podcast, doing my best to crank these suckers out. I have through June. Uh, I've recorded two more last week. I got another one to record tomorrow. I'm still trying to get maybe four or five more. It's getting hard to uh, to clamp some of these people down because my availability is getting kind of tight, and it's hard for some of these guys to schedule two or three weeks out. Sometimes they're looking four to six weeks out, but still trying to get those four to five more so I get all of July done and uh, I can get into August, get the kids back in school before I have to record a bunch more. Now, last but not least, I want to uh, give you something that I really enjoyed from this week's show with Zach. First off, this guy's a boss. Uh, He's been doing things at a very high level for an extended period of time. Always impressed when somebody's been in one place for more than a decade. And I think Zach's been at TCU 13, 14 years now. But obviously, I love his overarching philosophy and this idea of movement over maxes, teaching people to move effectively, move efficiently. That's been a cornerstone of my philosophy really since I started doing this. And I love that that's a focus for him. But one section I think you're really going to enjoy in this particular episode is where we talk about crawling and we talk about Zach's shoulder health program because too often as an industry, I think we get caught up in this idea of putting band-aids on potential areas of injury. In baseball, it could be shoulders or elbows. In soccer, it could be groins or hamstrings. While those things aren't necessarily bad, I'm never going to tell you not to do isolative work or corrective work. At the same time, we have to have this idea and this focus on getting the entire system to move more efficiently and more effectively. So when you get to that part of the show, you may want to uh, listen to it two or three times because I think it's just a great message and something that we can all learn and benefit from. All right, man, let's take a quick break and then we are going to jump into this awesome episode with my guy, Zach. One thing Bill Hartman and I have talked about for years now is the power of mentorship. Early on, I didn't have a mentor to shape or guide me, or most importantly, help me find the blind spots in my own training and coaching. But luckily, after many years of trial and error, I found Bill, and my professional success exploded as a result. But the downside to the mentorship process, at least professionally, is that it can be pricey. For private mentees that I work with, it costs anywhere from $3.99 to $5.99 per month to work together. 
And while I know the results go far beyond that price, the fact of the matter is that just won't work for a lot of folks. So when Bill and I sat down a while back, we asked ourselves a really tough question. How can we help shape the future of the industry and truly make it great? And beyond that, how can we create amazing content yet make it affordable to virtually every trainer or coach out there? And the answer for us was simple, restart iFast University. Here's what you'll get when you become a member of iFast University. One update each month from myself and Bill. This could cover anything from improving exercise technique to writing better programs and everything in between. Twice per month Q&As, where Bill and I will personally answer your questions to help you become better at training, coaching, or even running your fitness business. A Facebook group where you'll be surrounded by like-minded trainers and coaches who are serious about getting better, and access to the iFastU archives, where you'll be able to watch literally hundreds of pieces of content from the iFast team over the years. This blend of content and Q&A is specifically designed to help make you the best trainer or coach possible. If you're interested in learning more, head on over to ifastuniversity.com to get signed on. We'd love to have you on board. Zach Dakin is in his 14th year as the Senior Assistant Director of Strength and Conditioning at TCU, where he oversees all aspects of development for the baseball program. He is also the author of the book, Movement Over Maxes, which details the process of developing foundational movement qualities in athletes. In this show, Zach and I take a candid look at how he develops his baseball players at TCU. We start by talking about his Movement Over Maxes approach and why he focuses on building his athletes over their entire career. Next, we talk about the role of strength development, including how he assesses an athlete's strength, what is strong enough and the role VBT plays in his program. And last but not least, we touch on the topic of shoulder health and how he cures a lot of shoulder issues by having an extensive and well-rounded warm-up. This was an awesome show. And if you can get past the football guys and their music that shows up towards the end, I guarantee you're going to take away some serious nuggets. But enough for me, let's do this. Zach, man, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Really excited to have you on. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I appreciate you having me, Mike. This is my 14th season here at TCU, working directly with the baseball team now. Previous years, I've had some other roles and responsibilities with football and some other sports, but now just in charge of baseball and happy to be on the show. I love it, man. I love it. So talk to me. What led you to the world of physical preparation? Like what got you started in all this? Yeah, it was honestly, I grew up in a farming community in Kansas, population of 300 people or less. Oh, wow. Depending (laughs) on the day, right? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The high school didn't even have a weight room. If you want the truth, we didn't have a coach that knew how to do anything with strength and conditioning. It didn't have a weight room. So from the money I earned on the farm in the summers, I bought my own weights, my own rack, barbell, 300 pound plates plate set and started learning about strength and conditioning because I wanted to be a college athlete. And I knew if I was going to progress as an athlete, I was going to have to learn how to be bigger, faster, and stronger. And that's how the path really started for me. Had no idea what I wanted to do in college. And my dad, one day we were sitting on the couch and this is a light bulb moment in my life. He says, well, you love lifting weights. Why don't you teach people how to lift weights? And I was like, that's it. I'll be a strength (laughs) coach. And so that's how I'm here. That's awesome, man. And really harkens back to a certain area. When you say I bought the 300 pound plate set, you kind of date yourself a little (laughs) bit, but that's what we remember, right? Like wherever you got it from Sears or we had Dunham's, I don't know. But yeah, if you had the 300 pound weight set, you were like getting serious. Exactly. I even took, this is funny. I even took hundred pound weights off the front end of a tractor. You had to have weights on the front of a tractor to counterbalance your equipment in the back. I would take hundred pound plates 
and tie those to my body in different forms and hang them from barbells and stuff like that. So I had extra weight when I got strong enough. That's awesome, man. I love it. So last but not least, I would love to hear about like your career path because young coaches, a lot of young coaches listen to this show and I love them to see how you don't just start and finish in the same job. Right. So talk to us about your career path and where you've been over the years. Right. What young coaches have to know is that in the first three years of my career, I had 13 different addresses. You're going to move a lot if you want to be in a college setting. So it started off, I was an athlete at Missouri State, did an internship at the University of Washington because my mentor at Missouri State, my strength coach, Rick Perry, kind of set me up out there. So my internship at Washington came back to Missouri State as a GA, then spent two years with the Anaheim Angels in their organization as a strength coach. From there, really got my first full-time job in college at the University of Wyoming working with football. It was a short six-month stint there, and now I've been here at TCU for 14 years. And the way I got to TCU was really, TCU didn't have a separate department is in football and Olympic sports. The strength department was all combined. I had professional baseball experience, which obviously the baseball staff loved, and I had played college football. And so the strength staff, the football staff, they wanted somebody that had been in college football. And so I was kind of a perfect fit at the right time for TCU. Yeah. And that's such a big piece of it, right? Like right place, right time. Can't ever like predict, oh, they're going to need a coach just like me when I walk in the door. But man, it sounds like you fit a role there. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately for me, I had been in both sports and like I said, right place at the right time. I love it. All right. So let's start kind of basic and we'll work our way out from there. But for starters, one of the first things I always like to ask my guests is how would you you describe your philosophy or your big rocks when it comes to training athletes? Yeah, for me, first and foremost, it is built around movement. You know, I wrote the book Movement Over Maxis that detailed our foundation program with all of our incoming athletes. And that is, for me, it might be the only rock. <laughs> it's all built around movement. If your athletes don't know how to move, I can't progress them. I can't intensify our training in the weight room. And it wasn't just about the weight room. It was about teaching athletes how to move in an athletic position, teaching our athletes how to jump, how to land correctly. One of the biggest issues I saw in baseball specifically was jump training is a powerful, powerful mean for training our athletes, developing power, developing athleticism. And baseball athletes, it's not part of their sport. And so you can't wreck them too much for not knowing how to jump, but they didn't know how to jump and or land. And so when I first got to TCU, I actually had guys that would tear meniscus, a meniscus trying to land a jump in a warmup we'd practice standing broad jumps and I'd have guys that didn't know how to land correctly and I was getting guys hurt. And so I realized I've got to start training movement for not only the weight room or in the weight room, but out on the field, sprint, jumps, controlling your body into deceleration, change of direction. So it's all built and based around movement first and foremost. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, I think that's counterintuitive because a lot of young people or a lot of coaches that want to work in high level sports assume, oh, Well, if they're a high level fill in the blank, right? Basketball player, football player, soccer player, that they must know all of the things in the weight room. And like you just alluded to, like here, we're talking about division one athletes that don't have what we would consider to be basic movement skills. Yeah. A quick story for you. You know, before we jumped on the podcast, I told you I have anywhere from 30 to 35 pro athletes, MLB guys that'll train here in the off season. And I had a guy that was connected through another player that wanted to come train. He throws over a hundred miles an hour. He's in the show and he had never done an RDL before. He had no oh clue what a, what a hip hinge was. Yep. Just a simple hip hinge. Yep. 
And this is the pinnacle of sport. And honestly, like you're at the pinnacle of performance when you're throwing a hundred mile an hour and he'd never been taught a correct RDL and or hip hinge. Oh my gosh. And that, that's just mind blowing to think about that, that they're performing at that level with so little, what we would consider to be like rudimentary or fundamental movement skills. Yeah. It just shows you that some people can, if you're just a master of your sport skill, that yeah. a lot of this stuff often doesn't matter, right? Yeah. Yeah. They got the juice, man. Right. So- I think this is a relevant topic these days, and I love your philosophy. I love the idea of movement over maxes. But with that being said, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you determine strong enough with your athletes. So my question would be, like, what's the cutoff point for you? And maybe along those same lines, how do you relate the need for this to your athletes? That there is a plateau where, you know, continuing to get stronger maybe isn't what's going to serve you best. Yeah, so really it's been... 14 years of research and the number is still moving, right? Yeah, this, yeah. this could be an entire week's podcast if <laughs> right. we wanted it to be. <laughs> right. For us over the years, I've used 1.4 to 1.7 as a standard for our front squat. And the reason that it kind of ranges is it depends on the athlete. I've had all American guys, all American pitchers that four or five years into our program were never going to hit a 1.7 on a front squat. Although I knew by looking at them and I say, I know because of transfer and grinding gains to me, when you've been in a strength program for three or four years, and those gains start coming to a halt where it's man, it's six weeks before I could gain five pounds on a squat max, or, you know, over the course of an entire semester, 16 week semester, you're gaining 10 or 15 pounds at most. And those gains are grinding gains. That tells me you don't need more strength. Right. Yep. And then we also look at it as far as transfer goes. Those same guys might be stuck at a velocity just as an easy measurement to put in your uh, listeners heads. They might be stuck at a certain velocity and they're still getting stronger and it's not doing anything. Right. Yeah. So that tells me it's really not transferring. So we kind of take those into account when it comes to that 1.4 to 1.7 mark within our program. We've got three levels. We've got, you know, our foundation program is built around movement. Their intermediate program is built around developing that base level of strength. And then once they advance out of that, from that 1.4 to 1.7 range, they go into our advanced guys and those guys still touch strength. We're not dropping strength out completely. It's just to potentiate for our power and speed development. Really, that's what it's all about. And their specific skill work. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So when you were going through this, it, it made me think of something and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. When you get your pro guys back, how much actual like pure strength development do you need? Or is it more of just like a, hey, let's just rebuild this physical quality and then we're going to move on to the next things? Yeah. I mean, that's that's a tough question when you have such a wide range. Because yeah, a lot of true. times we'll have a kid that's a junior draftee yeah. who's 21 years old. And then you might have an MLB all-star who's 34, who's right. 12 years in. So it kind of depends on the athlete. But really what I figured out over the last couple of years is we don't have to hammer a bunch of crazy strength stuff with those guys. Yep. Just general movement quality, number one, and throwing med balls, doing our sprint stuff, making sure that really where we have to put all of our effort is making sure that they're prepared for the demands of the game yep. so that they've been doing their speed work, their running so that when they step on field, we're not staring a hamstring injury in the face, right? Yes. The strength work really is just accessory to everything else. Make sure we're getting our throwing programs which I control all of that skill work as well. Oh, nice. So make sure we're focused on the demands of the sport. First and foremost, the weight room is the accessory. Yeah, I love that. The reason I ask that is I find, and you may find something different because I work with a lot of basketball guys, but I find a lot of my basketball guys after about three years, like if they've been in a good D1 strength and conditioning program for about three years, 
they've kind of topped out a lot of their strength gains or their strength needs. So I was just interested to hear your thoughts on that. And you kind of alluded to that, right? Like if you've got a junior draftee, they may not be there yet, especially if they're like a long, lanky kid. They may still have some strength development you can eke out. But like you said, if you got a 30-year-old, generally they're probably pretty good with where they're at. Yeah. Some of those guys actually go into what we call our old man program, where it's <laughs> it's, it's basically what I do. Just joint yeah. health, make light weights feel heavy, if you yeah. will. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so funny because that's exactly what I'm on. I'll follow some of the programs like my basketball guys would. But yeah, it's definitely with a different level of intensity than they take it at. So that's awesome, man. Okay, so one thing that I know I'm a huge fan of, and you are as well, is VBT or velocity-based training. So I would love to hear your thoughts. Why do you use VBT in your programs? And what benefits have you seen from incorporating it in? Well, first off, we use VBT for auto regulation during the in-season, especially. Yep. So the in-season period, the only thing that matters, honestly, is your guys being fresh, in my opinion, right? Yep, it, absolutely. It, it all comes back to being fresh for the skill work that happens on field. And VBT gives us a chance to auto regulate those workloads. We can set intensity zones, you know, for instance, my position players today hit a zone between 0.8 and 0.9 on the Nintendo unit. Yep. If you're moving the bar faster, that means you're probably a little bit, you feel great. Your body's doing well, responding well to stress right now. You can use more weight. If you're not hitting those speeds and you're below 0.8, body's probably a little sluggish. We're a little fatigued. We're under stress, especially this week because it's finals week for us. Oh, yeah. So if that's the case and the bar's moving slow, we're going to take weight off. Instead of using percentages, like, you know, and I am a huge advocate of percentages, but at the same time, 80% is not 80% every day of the week and for every athlete. We're yeah. all at different points. And there's where auto-regulation with VBT comes into play for me. And what we found with that, to answer your second question, is that we can maintain strength very, very easily without banging heavy, heavy weights, put the joints under a ton of load in season. Yeah, it's a fantastic point. And it's something that I've used. I've used it more with a handful of football guys that I've trained over the years because football guys always have this mindset of, oh, I hit 315 last week. I got to hit 320 or 325 this week. So the second you start giving them that velocity zone that they have to hit, there's a lot less argument going on, right? Because we've had those days where we can watch them invisibly like, oh, this dude doesn't have it today. And so if you don't have a tool like VBT, now it's an argument, right? Like, yeah. nah, I don't think you should go up. No, 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 I got it. Versus, hey, man, you can go as heavy as you want, bro, as long as you can get it in this speed zone. Yeah, and there's so much more, really, that people don't think about. But the competitiveness, yes. it drives intent with your athletes. Objective intent is so much that is honestly something that I didn't think about early on in my career yep. that I've come to realize in the last three or four years. Having that objective feedback every rep, whether it's in the weight room or on the field with our speed work, yep. with our jump pads, that is super powerful as a training effect. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to circle back to something you mentioned, and I think this is a huge point that goes really kind of unnoticed in the minds of a lot of young coaches. And I know this happened to me as well. When you're a young coach you think you are the show, right? Regardless of the athlete, you're thinking, hey man, how can I give this person a faster 40 or a bigger squat or a higher vertical jump? And over time, you start to realize, hey, this person isn't built to be a weight room warrior. I need them to be the best baseball player, basketball, football, soccer, volleyball, whatever. And so you made this great point of it's about supporting the skill work. So could you just dive into that a little bit? Because again, as a young coach, you think it's all about the X's and O's and what you're doing. And I think as you get older, you have this tendency to humble yourself a little bit, take a step back and realize, hey, 
I'm a support staff to this athlete. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's like you're inside my home brain. Because <laughs> when I was a young coach, I thought it was. It was all about strength in the weight room. And I was the reason that these guys weren't getting injured and so on. But as you're in this field long enough, you realize that adaptation energy is very limited. Mm-hmm. And what they do over there is more important than anything else on their plate. That's why they're here. And we have to be a support system for what's happening on the field. You know, I used to get in arguments with our head coach about how much they were doing on the field. Like <laughs> we'd have guys that might get hurt or whatever the case is, or go down with soft tissue injuries. And you'd say, well, you guys are doing way too much. Right. And I came to realize with age and experience that that's not the case at all. We have to be able to support what they're doing over there. It's not necessarily that you have to change anything on the practice field. We need to change and alter what we're doing over here. And the ways that we've come to do that in the last couple of years We really focus on readiness with our athletes. So for me, it's just taking subjective indicators, right? That subjective score of our athletes' health. How do you feel? You know, how hard was practice? Scores like that that tell us a little bit. And really, it's talking to your athletes every day. They come in the weight room. The first thing we do is talk to our athletes. How do you feel? Communicate with your kids so that they understand that if today is a maximal output day, but they don't have it, that we don't have to chase it. It's Tony Holler. Tony Holler talks about freshness with feeding the cats. And that's exactly how we approach every day. Freshness. If you don't feel it, we're not going to chase it because we still have to have adaptation energy for what's happening in our skill development work. Yeah, I love that. This is something where, you know, people will say, oh, you know, the role of the coach is waning and sports science is on the forefront. And man, I love sports science as much as the next guy. But I think this is one of the best tools we have in our toolbox, right? It's this ability to pick up on these little cues, how somebody walks in, you know, their energy level. Like I used to have a guy when I trained the soccer team and I could tell what kind of training session we were going to have based on the energy level of one guy on that team. And if he's in there dancing around and bantering and messing with everybody, it was going to be a good day. And if he came in sluggish, you could generally tell the vibe was going to be low, low energy, and you have to shift kind of what you're trying to accomplish in that session. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. And this is something I actually talk about in 3D movement prep, which I know we're going to touch on. Yeah. But the warm-up is so powerful. If you actually use your eyes and ears and watch and listen to what's happening, if your kids are talking and screwing around, you know they feel good. Right. When the session is dead and it's up and down, slow off the ground, if they have a mobility drill or whatever the case, and it's dragging, yep. you know that these guys are not ready to go. So that maximal outputs might not be the thing on the schedule for the day. Yeah, I love it, man. Okay, so kind of shifting away from the weight room a little bit, I know you like incorporating crawling patterns into your training session as well. You had an awesome Instagram post up about it the other day. So kind of a two-part question here. Number one, why do you like crawling patterns? And two, how can we incorporate them with our athletes to help them stay healthy? So really, I like them for a lot of reasons, but probably it started out as like coordination, number one, just teaching athletes basic coordination patterns, building strength, body weight strength, right? Yeah. And it started as trunk and scapular stability because I think there's so many benefits for athletes to have to stabilize their spine and move their scapula. That's really where the meat and potatoes is for us. We build it into all of our warmups. And I do that because we can eliminate time in the weight room if I can incorporate some of that stuff into their warmup. And so a lot of our serratus work that talk about the rotator cuff and the scapula, very important in baseball. A lot of our serratus work actually happens in the warmup and we utilize crawling patterns to do that. So I kind of forgot what the uh, second part of your question was. (laughs) Yeah, the second part was like, how do you incorporate it? But I think you kind of already said that, you know, you got it. I thought I I was getting to it, but then I was like, well, I'm not sure if that's a question he asked or not. No, that's perfect. And you bring up the first point that I think of is 
too often now, and I know you see this as well, is like I feel like a lot of coaches feel this need to push weights on kids at a younger and younger age. And so you kind of alluded to this without saying it, but this concept of internal loading first, right? Like owning body weight, being able to squat, lunge, hinge, press, like push-ups, all these basic foundational movements before you go to the external loading. And like you said, it's so much more dynamic. Like you can talk about all the isolated serratus and cuff work that you want to throw in there, but man, you do all those different crawling patterns that you showed. You just hit all of those things in your warm-up. You don't have to worry about it like these little correctives throughout your workout program. You're exactly right. And you actually said it better than I said it. So <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll take that. But I actually, we filmed those crawls last week and I crawl every week. And my serratus is more sore from crawling patterns when I do it in my own workout than it is from any other exercise that we have. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm going to make sure I get that link into the show notes so people can see that because sometimes too, people think, oh, well, Zach works with pitchers or Zach works with baseball players. So it won't work for my population. But if you work with an overhead population, baseball, softball, swimming, volleyball, I'm sure there's others I'm forgetting. You can work those in there and see benefits from it. Any athlete, really. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. The scapular benefits, the scapular and and serratus benefits, obviously for the overhead sports, but just the demands on the trunk and spinal stability and having to coordinate that motion, every athlete can use that. Absolutely, man. So obviously kind of hearkening on this same point of keeping the shoulders and elbows of baseball players healthy, it's a big deal, right? It's a big part of what you do. So kind of along those same lines, what are some of your big rocks? We talked about crawling, but what other things are you doing in your programs to help keep your athlete's shoulders and elbows healthy? So the way I would answer this question is the big rocks for us are the entire program. It's holistic, right? So many people want to say that it's this sheet of 10 exercises, right? Right. 10 exercises, you're going to keep your shoulder and your elbow healthy. That's not what it is whatsoever. It comes back to, again, the demands of the sport. Are you actually prepared for what you're going to do on the mound? Right. You know, it's recovery sessions, your sleep, nutrition, your hydration. It's what did you do to prepare for the preseason? What did you do in the off season? How do you move? What are your mechanics like? Right. All those things factor in. They matter so much more than your set of 10 or 15 band exercises that you do before and after your throwing program. Everything else matters so much more than just those couple of exercises that that people talk about with the uh, rotator cuff, with the scapula, or trying to protect the elbow. It's a holistic program. Yeah, I love that. All right, man. So kind of as you alluded, I love that point about it being the whole program. And this is something that people often ask. They're like, oh, well, you know, with soccer, should I have like hamstring or adductor specific work? Or, you know, in baseball, should I have cuff specific work? And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Like if it makes you feel better to check that box, but you're absolutely right. Like if you've got a well-rounded holistic program, a lot of times you don't need all these isolated corrective drills to get the job done. Yeah. So often it comes back to the volumes, the intensities, and just the preparation of you actually getting into your sports skill. You know, that's what we see with pitchers. They throw a bullpen, you know, they might start their bullpens out of 15 to 20 pitches, but it's an 80 or 85% effort. And then they build volume on top of that at 20 to 30 pitches and it's at 80, 85% effort. And then their first practice, their coach schedules their bullpen or for it to be a sim game. And now they're at 45 to 60 pitches at 100% intensity and the workloads and intensities don't match what they've been prepared for. And that's where you start running into problems. It's not because you didn't do two sets of 10 on your (laughs) sideline external rotation. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where too, like, I think you alluded to the fact that you have a lot of control over those kinds of numbers and monitoring that. I think that's such a critical piece where we don't have to have these silos of, well, we're SNC and these are the sports specific guys and the coaches, like we each have our own thing. No, I think the better we can merge and have those discussions and kind of understand that we're all here to help support the athlete, right? The better those discussions can be, the better we're going to be able to take care of these athletes over the long haul. You're right. For ultimate health and performance with our athletes, it's all going to come down to that holistic model of everybody being involved in essentially all the decisions of the organization. Yep. Love it, man. Okay. So I'm sure this is going to be a tough one, but I would love to hear your thoughts on what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see people making when they're training baseball players? Because you see all ages, right? You said any given day, you could see an eight-year-old up to an MLB all-star. So what are some of the biggest mistakes you're seeing these days? This is not a hard question. Oh, okay. (laughs) Some of the ones that honestly, off the top of my head, in-season training, a lot of baseball, a lot of baseball people have problems with in-season training in that they don't make time for it. And that's probably the biggest issue I see, especially at the youth level, high school level, is that kids will train hard in the off season and then completely dump it in the in season. It's two steps up the mountain and three steps back every year. That is a huge one. Another big one that I get lit up on social media all the time for is the 300 yard shuttle, right? (laughs) And because it doesn't have a place in the game. That is training an energy system that is not relevant whatsoever in our sport. I understand the need for aerobic conditioning and some aerobic capacity to build workloads, to emphasize the parasympathetic nervous system and recover. I can make a case for aerobic training all day long in baseball, but for us, it's as a support mean, it's not the primary driver of baseball performance. It helps to support the primary driver, but anaerobic glycolytic conditioning, that type of stuff does not have any place whatsoever in baseball. Right. And this will honestly make your head spin. I had an all-American pitcher here a few years ago that would throw in the high 90s. He went to an organization and like we talked about, I have all these pro athletes here. I reach out to the organizations and say, all right, what do we need to look at skill-wise? Is there anything mechanics going on with this guy that I need to focus on assessments. What do you have? Strength, power, anything. Give me feedback on what we need to work on in the off season. In this organization, the only thing they wanted to make sure that this athlete was prepared for was for his 300 yard shuttle test at the first day of preseason or spring training, I should say. He needs to get it under such and such seconds. And then he has to do three of those consecutively with three to five minutes rest or whatever. That's the number one requirement. And I'm thinking this was an all-American pitcher who, and one of the reasons I was hoping for more information is because he had lost about eight mile an hour on his average fastball. Oh my gosh. So not only was he not throwing as hard, but he was honestly, he's never going to make it out of minor league baseball unless we figure out what he used to have. Right. And the only thing they could tell me, no skill development, nothing on assessments on this is going on. This is what we see. Let's make sure his 300 yard shuttle test is under this time for three rounds in the first day of spring training, which will never, they'll never even run that again. Right. One time during the right. year. And that's what we're worried about. This is what your listeners have to understand. This is the peak of that sport. This is the pinnacle of the sport yep. telling me this is what they need. And I was like, are you kidding me? That's mind blowing. Okay. So this leads to a great segue. What did you do with that guy? 
Okay, because I've had this issue before too, right? Like I've had soccer players where they have to go and do this ridiculous conditioning test, right? Or basketball players that has no bearing on their sport, right? But somebody in the higher up has determined this is the thing, right? So what did you do in that situation? Because I know what I've done, but I want to hear you. Yeah, so obviously I've known the athlete for seven plus years now, and I knew exactly what he needed. Mm -hmm. So we attacked it like I would if he was still an athlete at TCU. Nice. And with this particular athlete, a lot of them I do prep for about mm -hmm. 10 days to 14 days for that 300-yard shuttle, and we'll start practicing it. And I'll let them run it a couple times on, you know, whatever day. They'll run it a couple times a week just so they know exactly right. what they're getting into again, so they kind of yep. feel it. This kid, we didn't do any of that. And we attacked what we would normally attack, tempo runs, that type of thing. Yep. He went in and blew the administration, the organizational guys, away with what he did in his 300-yard shuttle. And he, he texted me as soon as it was over because it was hilarious. Even the strength coach texted me and was like, dude, I don't know what you did with him. His 300-yard shuttles were amazing. The organization <laughs> is all about it right now. And, and he texted me as soon as it was over and was like, dude, I just blew everybody away on these 300-yard shuttles and we never even ran it one time, Yeah. right? Yeah. If that's the test, that's telling you something. If I don't have to practice it to perform to it, it, like it's a waste. Yeah, no, I love it. That's always been my kind of mindset too. It's like, hey, look, at the end of the day, when they watch you on the field, do they notice you? Like, that's what I tell all my athletes, like, be so good, they can't ignore you. So if you're so good, they're not going to care, you know, that you can't pass this arbitrary test. Because at the end of the day, every coach, their job is on the line. They need to win games. And if you can help them do that, you're going to find a way to play. Right. You throw 100 mile an hour, they don't care what that 300 yard challenge is. <laughs> right. They don't care. They don't care that Kevin Durant didn't bench 185 at the combine anymore. You know what I mean? As he's averaging 30 some points a game. Right. Okay, man, big question time. If you could alter the space-time continuum and give young Zach DeCant one piece of advice, what would it be? It would be not to chase strength so much. I chased it as an athlete, as an intern, as a GA with my early teams, chasing strength at the detriment of not only joint health and how my body feels now, but sports skill especially. You have to be a master at your sport. That's the most important thing at the end of the day. I love it. I love it, man. I think as I'm going through these shows, I always think about like, what are some of the potential titles, right? Yeah. I love that idea of chasing strength and the negative drawbacks to that. And I think that's something we've all had to learn, right? Like we came out, I think you're probably just a few years younger than I am, but we came out in a different time, man. You know, strength was the name of the game. And most schools were either like powerlifting focused or they were Olympic lifting focused, you know? And so you kind of came from one of those schools of thought. And I think it's been cool to watch the evolution in our field like okay hey strength has a role but it's not the only piece of the puzzle anymore and that's what's exciting about our field yeah and really i kind of thought about this today before the show started i think part of that evolution came about because there were so few strength coaches and really your role was stuck in the weight room yeah when i first started it was myself and my mentor and 24 sports so you never even saw the sunlight to be honest yeah, yeah. let alone yep. like a practice field or actually what their sports skill was you were stuck in the weight room running teams through and through and through the sport coaches were responsible for any running conditioning speed work if they did that you never saw any of that stuff because you were stuck in the weight room and so strength became really i mean that was the only way that was the only thing you did i love it man that's awesome okay dude last but not least lightning round five fairly short questions your answer can be as long or short as you like. Number one, what's your career highlight so far as a coach? If you can think of just one. Personally, it's Movement Over Max is the book, finally releasing that. Professionally, it is watching your athletes go from boys to men, if you want the truth. Being in weddings, 
some of my athletes are actually my best friends now. They were in my wedding, That's awesome. watching them turn into fathers. That's why I got into this. I left professional baseball and went to the college setting so that I could change guys' lives, not only in the weight room and on the field, but creating a culture that would create young men. Yeah. No, I love that. Not to get too far off course here, but I think that's something that the longer you do this, the more you value the mentorship role. And yeah, there's a lot of X's and O's and technical stuff that we like to talk about, but man, there's a lot of time in between sets. And if you've got somebody three, four, five years, you can build some really strong relationships in that period of time. Yeah. It's all about relationships. That's something I didn't realize when I was young. Yeah, absolutely. I love it, man. Okay. Number two, talk to me about 3D movement prep. Yeah, so 3D movement prep is essentially details are dynamic warmups, both on and off the field. So, and it's for all athletes. It's not baseball specific whatsoever, but it's a system that we use to teach coordination, spatial awareness, proprioception, teaching athletes how to move and control their bodies in space. That was one of the biggest questions I got, or I still get, is what do we do for practice warmups? What do we do for pregame warmups? And it's, it doesn't pertain to the weight room in any facet. It's the same philosophy that we applied to movement over maxes. Now we're just going to utilize that time a little bit more efficiently in our warmups. It comes with 10 different variations, 10 different templates of warmups that oh, we nice. utilize, 150 different exercise demonstrations of how we tie in our advanced traveling skills to honestly become better athletes. It's just teach your athletes how to move better. Yeah, I love it, man. Okay, number three, favorite baseball player growing up. Yeah, so I grew up in Western Kansas. To be honest, we didn't pay attention to baseball <laughs> <laughs> Western Kansas is more football oriented. So I was a big John Elway fan and a big okay. Michael Jordan fan. Man. Yeah, baseball. I don't know if I even paid attention to pro baseball when I was a kid. See, and that's so interesting. Like I know Eric Cressy was like a huge tennis player. Like he wasn't a huge like baseball guy, but then it's funny how... Yeah. You know, like you said, right place, right time. You fall into something and make things happen. I love it. Absolutely. Love it. All right, number four. Best advice for a young coach who wants to get an internship at TCU or really any college program for that matter? Yeah, the first thing is you really you have to start coaching somewhere. You have to start. And whether it's at a D1 or somewhere else, you have to start getting that experience. When you start working up into those power fives, they're probably going to require you to have a little bit of background in strength and conditioning before you it's not going to be right. your first foray into it right right you're either going to have to have been an athlete probably you have to have some background before you step into it this is not something for guys that are like i love watching workout stuff on instagram i think i'll just go try that that's not how we get interns we want you to prove it in a way before you get yep. here and one of my biggest questions for interns i always ask what are you reading what's your favorite books who are you following to learn something right now? If you're not doing that, then that tells me you're really not passionate about this because when you have passion about something and you don't know about it, you are on a quest to find every piece of knowledge that you can to learn about this. And so if that's not what you're doing, then this kind of tells me it's probably not for you. That's so funny. That's like one of our biggest litmus tests at IFAST too, is who are you following? Where do you get information from? What are your favorite training books? Yeah. And if they don't have answers, you can't tell me the NSCA strength and conditioning essentials book, right? That you had to read to get your CSCS. Like talk to me about who you're following and who you're trying to model your stuff after. That's what I want to know. That's great. Exactly. Okay. Last but not least, number five. What's next for Zach DeCamp? Well, it's a big series against Texas, if you want the truth, this yeah. weekend. So right now, it's the next six weeks of our baseball season. It's the most important part. We didn't have a season last year. The Frogs are doing really, really well right now. So I'm just excited for the next six weeks. After that, the beginning of August, my wife is due with a baby boy, hopefully. Oh, nice. So yeah, so right now it's fixing 
a room up so that that's ready to go. It's trying to make sure all those things are lined up along with the next six weeks of baseball. So there's a lot coming fast. And funny enough, like we talked about, one of my former players who is actually one of my best friends, he still plays professional baseball. They are also having a baby boy and it's within five days of our due date. Oh my so gosh. hopefully we're raising our sons together and it all comes yeah. back to relationships with your athletes, right? That's awesome, man. Well, congrats. It's exciting. I always tell people my best advice is the first three months are basically hell, <laughs> you know, but you get through the first three months, then it's all downhill from there. I'm excited for you, man. That's, it's going to be fun, dude. It's a wild ride. Yeah, I'm excited for it. So we'll see. I love it. Well, it's the next person you get to mentor, right? Like that's exactly. the way I think about it. That's How do you mentor a young ball of goo from zero to 18 and however long, you know, that's exciting, man. I'm happy for you. I've been working my whole life to get them ready for athletics. So hopefully (laughs) I don't screw it up. That's right. That's right. Well, Zach, man, you've been awesome to catch up with today. Where can my listeners find out more about you? Yeah. ZachDakin.com is my website. They can find everything there. And then I'm active on social media, Twitter, Instagram, handles are Zach Dakin there as well. So reach out anytime. I'll answer questions as best as I can and happy to talk. Awesome, man. Well, I'll make sure I get all the links in the show notes. But again, dude, thanks so much for coming on. This was really great. Thank you, Mike. All right, my friend, that does it for this week's show with Zach. Really hope you enjoyed it. This was one of those talks, man. We've never really interacted before. I followed Zach's work, got a lot of respect for the quality of the work that he's doing, but we've never interacted in a live environment like this before. And man, we have a lot of shared experiences, a lot of similarities in the way that we think. And I know I took a ton away from this episode, and I hope you did as well. So I do have a favor to ask. If you know a coach, a trainer, maybe somebody in the baseball world that works with a lot of baseball players. Could you pass this show along to them? My goal here is to try and make our space, our industry, the best that it can possibly be. And I think the more great people we can learn from, like Zach, the better we're going to be as an industry and as a whole. So if you would pass this episode along to somebody that works with baseball players, I would truly appreciate it. So my friend, that does it for this week's episode. As always, love and appreciate you. After this, we will be back soon with our next episode. So until then, take care.